Hey everyone, welcome to Love is a Business Strategy. This week we sit down with Sujin Jun. She shares a powerful story of personal loss and her deep desire to bring empathy back to every component of healthcare. We hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome to Love as a Business Strategy. This is a podcast that brings humanity to the workplace. As you know, we're here to talk about business, but we want to tackle topics that most business leaders shy away from. We believe that humanity and love should be at the center of every successful business. Now, I'm your host, Jeff Ma. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm Frank. I'm, I'm a director at Softway, but I'm not Jeff Ma. He's usually hosting. Today, I'm hosting. It's no big deal. We are a business to employee solutions company that creates products and offers services that help build resilience and high performance company cultures. Today, I'm joined by Mohammed, Softway CEO. Hello, Mohammed. Hello, Frank. Hey, and Sujin Jun. And this is our special guest, and we are so excited that you're here with us today. And Sujin, I'd like to introduce you really quickly. You are a voice for voiceless patients in healthcare. You're a believer in empathy, you're a pharmacist, and you're a patient advocate. And you're also a medium writer. So you own a medium publication called I Am Cheese, where you share healthcare stories with the vision of empathetic healthcare. So welcome to Love as a Business Strategy. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited. Very excited, Sujin. So as per the usual, we start out our episodes with a little icebreaker question. And so today's icebreaker question is kind of healthcare-centric, and I'm going to throw it at Muhammad first. So he gets to answer it, and you get time to think about this. But Muhammad, this will be an easy question for you. Have you ever broken a bone? Oh, Plenty of times. Plenty <laughs> like, of bones. Okay. And, and how bones. how is the question? What's the what's the juiciest story around breaking a bone? Mm, okay. The one story is from high school. I used to go to a um a college prep school where I lived in the dorms. And so in the cafeteria, we had like milk and food and you know, all of the stuff. So I one time took two cartons of milk. Uh, for dinner time, and I got in trouble at the school for taking two cartons of milk instead of one. Oh my so gosh. I had to go see the dorm master who then punished me uh, with giving me work detail, meaning now I had to uh, vacuum the floors of the dorm and clean the toilets and things like that because I broke the rule of one carton of milk. Huh. So I got really upset and angry and i punched the wall and i broke my hand and wow after wow. that um it became a big joke in the school and i was told by people passing in the hallways hey mo i think uh i think you may have uh calcium deficiency you should drink more milk and they were just pick on <laughs> me after that because of that so that, that was my story like how i broke my hand punching the wall and it became the joke of the thing to where it made it to the yearbook as my future predictions as I move into a house with padded walls, um, you know, all kinds of things. It was a, it was pretty intense. But yeah, that's the jo that's my story of breaking bones. Listen, I first of all, I've never heard that before, and second of all, it looks like you were trying to prepare. You knew what was best for your body. The quote unquote milk is better for bones. I don't think I think that's been debunked. But anyway, um, so Sujin, what about you? Have have you ever broken a bone? I think I have, but I don't really remember the details. It was when I was little. I think I was running, doing like a running race, and it broke 
my arm. Mm. That was the, yeah, that's the only detail I remember. Otherwise, I don't think I've ever, ever broken a bone afterwards. I think mom's broken you? bones for, for everybody uh, <laughs> here on the call. So for me, it, it wasn't really a broken bone. It was more of a, an ankle like fracture. I was, I was jumping on a trampoline and I was 11 years old and I was double bounced which, you know, is when someone hits the trampoline in a certain way. And then I flew up really high, a lot of fun up in the air. But when I hit, my ankle kind of twisted a bit. And this was two weeks before I was taking an international trip to the Philippines. And so oh, I was no. really freaking out because it was, it was my first like trip, you know, to another place outside of yeah. the US, like an actual long distance trip. Uh, mm -hmm. Luckily, it wasn't bad enough to not be able to go. Um, but it, uh, it hurt for a few days. And I think that's the closest I've gotten to a, a bone breaking was just jumping on a trampoline, nothing like punching walls or anything, but <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. We're good. Thank you for that icebreaker. And, 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 and Susan, I just want to start with you. Is that a bone breaker or icebreaker? I don't know. Oh my <laughs> gosh. <laughs> I like that. If you want to know what working at software is like, this is it right here. And it's amazing. It's a, it's an incredible environment at, and, and Sujan, I want to I want to start off with you and and talk about um, your passion for for what you do, the work that you do. And I want to, you know, the first the first statement that I mentioned was that you are a voice for voiceless patients in healthcare. And I'd love for you to to just start us down this path. Tell us the story of how you got to this place where you've arrived to be this patient advocate. I'd love to love to hear that story and, and dig into it a little deeper. Sure. Um, so this goes back about 13, 14 years ago when I was a caregiver for my father. Uh, I was a wedding videographer at the time. It's totally different from pharmacy. Okay. Um, and my dad was diagnosed with cancer, esophageal um, stage three cancer. And on top of that, he also was diagnosed with diabetes afterwards. And I was relatively healthy. He was also until that diagnosis. We were very unfamiliar with healthcare system in the United States. We were from South Korea. And, um, you know, although he was very fluent in English, still Korean was his primary language and English was his second language. But he had no issues with communicating um, in everyday language, but when it came to healthcare, it was very different. And like, I didn't know what to expect and he didn't know what to expect, I think. Um, as we go from doctor to doctor, because he's, you have, now he has an oncologist, his primary doctor, and he was in hospital for, for a month for like a C-tube placement and his therapies. And then he went into a um, nursing home. Then he came to my home afterwards. So right, right there, even just um, like in one minute, you can see how complicated the care can be. Mm -hmm. um, he had to be tested five times a day for his diabetes, for his insulin injection. Uh, he had 20, or so medications to take. Oh, and, you know, the combination of the trust that I put in healthcare 
and uh, my dad's trust in healthcare um, with these complex navigations that was present in healthcare um, really gave detrimental outcomes. He was not getting better. He had two emergency visits for low sugar that can be caused by um, insulin. So this is um, anyone who has insulin, by the way, on their uh, medication therapy can have low blood sugar at any time of their therapy, no matter how well it's managed. Hmm. So if you have diabetic um, relatives or family members, this is so important for you to know um, because they can just go low sugar and lose consciousness. But anyway, um, because of all these things that was happening, my dad was just so disappointed and wanted to get care in South Korea where he would get cheaper um, care and more comprehensive because a lot of preventative care and um, a lot of um, the cost for healthcare is covered by the country. So we were all ready to go. I couldn't let my dad go by himself. So our whole family back booked our flight. We were all ready to go. And one week before our flight, he passed away. Wow. So, in fact, today is his birthday. Um, yeah. And um, whenever I have to talk about this experience, it just... Um, brings me the memory of how sad and um, angry I was. And I felt like I had to do something mm. so that no other people go through what I've gone through or what my dad has gone through. So um, at the time, I was considering um, career change, and you know, I was all always um, I wanted to be a doctor before I decided to go into art. And I wanted to pursue something in healthcare, so I decided um, I was kind of contemplating different options. And pharmacy came to mind because how he passed away with insulin, and I felt pharmacist would be a perfect bridge between patients and um, doctors and healthcare. So um, it took me about nine years um, to complete the pharmacy school because I was raising two little kids at the time. Um, so I was going part-time for my prerequisites and I had I did in, uh, four years of uh, pharmacy school. So it could be longer than a lot of other people, but um, I made it and, and I don't know how I did it because <laughs> it was really, really tough. I, I slept like three hours a day and that was like, the entire duration of the, you know, uh, um, the process while I was completing the course uh, courses. And um, yeah, so I became a pharmacist. And after I became one, I, you know, I started practicing and I realized 
there was the, the pharmacy was just a very little piece of the whole puzzle. And, you know, just taking care of medications was not really solving the problem for a patient. Mm. And I've got to, to know so many patients um, who are even, you know, they, their English is their primary language they, and they would still get hurt and they would still you know, not be properly apologized by the healthcare system. And it's, and this is happening every day, every moment in this country. They're leading cause of um, death next to heart disease and um, cancer is uh, arguably medical error. Um, I know there is a negative connotation into the word error, but, and I, I, and, you know, I would argue it could possibly be number one because there's no way to measure, um, this number. No one's really measuring it the way it should be. And if you count the omissions and count the cases like in my dad, where miscoordination just results in um, not optimal outcome, then I, I, I would say it could possibly be number one. Um, and, you know, as I encounter these patients and, you know, so many minority patients who have second languages don't even have means to bring wow. what they experience to, to anywhere. And there are very, even like in the judicial system, uh, many lawyers don't take patient cases if they can't see, um, you know, see them see themselves winning the cases. And even if they take the cases, they stop supporting the patient because it takes decades sometimes um, or many times to get to the conclusion. And a lot of patients end up losing anyway. So there's not many voices. I, I realize there aren't that many voices um, for these patients. And I decided to be one. And that is why I started the Medium publication to, um, to accept any patient stories in any language. And I have some volunteer editors who, um, translate these stories so all can learn and not just the patients and um, caregivers but I strongly believe healthcare systems can learn um, from these stories and that um, I realized after I became a pharmacist um, as much as I um, advocate for empathy for patients I realized healthcare professionals need empathy as much as patients because we are constantly pressed to work harder and you know and there's no they don't the healthcare systems don't give us enough room to have empathy and this is uh, a misconception that a lot of people have that you can just kind of you know demand empathy and you you'll get it right 
Um, and the and the answer is no. You need you need to give a space. You need to give uh, a moment of breath for these healthcare professionals so they can have a room for empathy for patients. They need to be able to care take care of themselves before they can have empathy for patients. So that's these, this is the path that I've um, taken and realized how empathy needs to be supported in healthcare in order for patients to be heard, but also healthcare professionals to be heard. Wow. Thank you for sharing, uh, Sujin. That was really, uh, I, 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 I appreciate you sharing that. I think there are many folks out there who have, you know, similar stories or experiences, you know, having gone through, uh, you know, loved ones or family members, um, you know, through these uh, healthcare type scenarios. So if you don't mind, if you're willing to share, like, I know you touched a part of like um, English is not their first language or it's their second language and, you know, minorities or cultural differences would you be able to give examples from the stories that you've heard and learned from about how it could become an impediment in delivering healthcare or what you've seen from the stories where there is that lack of empathy as some examples for us to discuss? Um, so, you know, as I uh, was participating in a conference where, um, it's a CE, um, an organization it's called ACCME. Um, and I was attending the conference as an advocate. So there were full of people who were um, executives and educators and, you know, and I'm not a racist. Um, First of all, so uh, I want to <laughs> give that as a background, but this is a full, uh, this is a room full of people who are white male. And I was given a chance to talk uh, about what I'm supporting as a patient advocate. And this, this um, was very new, like embedding patient advocates in conferences uh, was very new concept, and they were kind of experimenting this. Um, so I um, volunteer for this position, and I was selected to be participant. And um, you know, they were as they were experimenting this concept. Um, you know, they wanted to hear from the advocates. So I, you know, brought the issue of um, the minority patients and. Um, you know, there was one gentleman who shared the story of um, a Japanese patient who was seeking help through um, um, like an electronic health record system. So you message the doctor, you can message the doctor through like my, something called like my chart or you know, there are these tools yes. in healthcare that, you know, kind of facilitate emailing or messaging um, your doctor. So this Japanese patient was trying to get help for his 
coughing and condition that he was experiencing, but English was his second language. So mm -hmm. his English was not perfect, but he was pushed to use this tool uh, when he requested to talk to the doctor. So he was kind of using that, but um, you know, because of his English, it wasn't, um, it didn't sound urgent. It didn't um, communicate the context very well. So the doctor did not really think of it as something very significant. And, you know, the doctor told the Japanese patient to, um, to seek urgent care and really did not, um, did not have a chance to fully um, have a, a proper interaction with the patient. And then the patient, I guess, it's in this case, probably didn't think it was that serious, you know, because possibly because of the interaction, but I don't really know the whole story, but from what the gentleman shared, the, the Japanese patient ended up having pneumonia and passed away. Hmm. So, um, I talk about this in, a, in an article that I wrote in Medium um, because, you know, we, oh, a lot of patients get pushed to use digital health more and more. And this context, um, you know, although we can't really say digital health was a contributing, you know, the entirely the contributing factor for the death. Uh, this is very common practice. I guess it can e even apply to any patient who are not able to verbalize or properly communicate uh, what they're experiencing um, in English. Um, mm. You know, it, it can very well be English-speaking patient, like 90-year-old, you know, patient who can't really use computer mm. um, or, you know, it, it doesn't really necessarily have to be second, you know, English as second language patient, but right. this case was such case. So, so I, you know, um, I was able to have that conversation with that executive. But when I bring up this something, something like this kind of topic, some people would like roll their eyes, mm. you know, in front of me. And, you know, I'm not sure, you know, they don't really share verbal um, comments, but, you know, it can possibly be either they don't empathize with what, I'm, what I have to say, or I've seen some um, practitioners saying, oh, there's an interpreter, they can take care of that, you know. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to chronic disease, interpreter is not the answer um, a lot of times. And um, because, you, first of all, you don't get, a same interpreter all every time and the patient has, has to repeat the whole story every time if they get different interpreter and um you know when it comes to chronic disease that can be very exhausting um for caregivers and patients and even even you know without the interpretation patients always always complain about um repeating the same thing over and over to different providers and practitioners. Um, so imagine how that can be difficult for um, patients who have um, English as second language. Yeah. Um, and these kind of things don't even, 
get into uh, the topics very well. This is more like a second thought for a lot of executives. Um, and that I, that I think really needs to change as we, um, the healthcare in the United States are expanding um, to other parts of the world now. Um, and people who are living in the United States can be living in other countries who have other languages as a uh, primary language. The, the term minority is a very fluid term. You know, you can, I, you can be minority in, in any type of setting, not just a language, right? You can be, you know, I know Frank talked about um, in, his, in the book, uh, you, the, the book that you guys wrote, um, you know, having um, like an imposter syndrome about his education and things like that. You can identify yourself as a minority in any type of setting. Um, yes. we, and, that, and that's a constant, we constantly assess that as a human being. It's a human behavior, not necessarily because you are minority or majority. It doesn't matter. It's, it's a, something that we do as a human. So um, the healthcare language, I feel, needs to focus how we are human um, more than is this majority issue, minority issue. Um, and this is something that I realized as I became aware of, you know, perfectly, you know, the patients who are perfectly able to um, bring the topics that they care about, you know, get ignored. Get, they, they simply get ignored. And um, it's, it's a very sad reality that we live in. And um, I also say this, that unless our healthcare can heal itself, we cannot heal we cannot have a healing environment for patients. They cannot be healed. Um, so we really need to work hard on the culture. I know that's um, your company's, you know, um, mission and passion. Um, it is. It is my passion too. It, unless that changes, no matter how much you know about medications, really, it really does not make impact for patients' well-being. Yeah. Agreed. I was just going to say, like, um, yeah, patient safety and outcomes is, uh, you know, a really big healthcare outcome, right? Like everybody wants, uh, every hospital system should aspire for improving patient safety and patient experiences. Um, and some of them are even incentivized that way. Um, but ultimately, I think, um, like you said, if the mindset and the behaviors of the staff, the population that are, you know, providing these services uh, inside our hospital systems, unless they have the, the uh, ability to see everyone as human from an empathic lens, um, we can institute all types of technology solutions to bring about efficiency and um, you know, solutions to augment or enhance patient, you know, uh, care, but you can, if you're missing that human component of empathy, 
it will reflect in your even your technology advancements, your innovation, your processes. If you don't think from an empathic lens, you will see that miss out in your systems that you build, your processes you institute, your technology you you institute right. in your organization in healthcare. So that's what I'm taking away from your conversation is, while it's not the technology's fault, which you know we can attribute like in the case of the teledoc, you know, messaging communicator tool, it's not the, you know, the, the technology was never built to look at the patient from the lens of the, the, the human aspect of, you know, is this going to really be effective for all types of patients, English speaking, right. non-speaking or old or tech savvy and not tech savvy. Right. So when these technology decisions are also being implemented or made, if the at the end of the day it's human at the end creating these technology decisions exactly. building technology yeah. if they have that empathy from the get-go you will see it reflect in the technology mm-hmm. as well so mm-hmm. i could see how there's a lot of room for improvement for systems to bring in more of those humanistic behaviors uh, even if it's technology and processes yeah, yeah. and digital health is getting bigger every day um, you know, now many companies have telehealth as their um, benefit, and it's gonna be. It was um, it was helping us when we were having COVID. I mean, and we it still is. You know, we still have we are it's still in pandemic, but right. um, you know, it does help. But there are components that it needs to be constantly improved and the feedback from patients need to be honored somehow but that process is like a second thought for a lot of companies um so and there's and especially when it comes to minority patients being able to provide feedback you know do companies provide surveys in second language not that many. Yeah. Um, I know there's Spanish for a lot of surveys, but um, what about other patients? Um, right. What are we doing with them? Um, how are we making sure that these surveys are readable for these patients? And other than surveys, is there other ways to bring concerns? You know, surveys, you get like after two months of your visit, like, are you going to be able to remember? what happened? No. And so mm. there's a lot of things that happening and get measured, but are we really measuring it the right way? Um, you know, that's, yeah. that's a big um, question that a lot of organizations don't really um, ask. And they're just so busy, um, you know, checking the checklist to see whether they are complying to um, what uh, big organizations like um, Joint Commission and other healthcare um, like improvement and um, you know organizations that um, measure these things, you know, also like Medicare and Medicaid, they you know I know Mo, Mo you talked about incentivizing. Um, 
And this is another aspect that I, that a lot of patient advocates kind of pay close attention to, like how there's a, there's a growth of um, how organizations want to engage patients. So the term patient engagement is, is the buzzword out there, but it's a lot of times it's used improperly. It's not something that patient advocates hope to see how would these words get thrown out, thrown um, to be used because they're thinking of ROIs, um, how they can get payments, you know, how to make patients to behave the way they want um, patients to behave so they can get paid. And <laughs> this is um, this is the trend that I see that and the, and the patient advocates look closely to see whether uh, organizations are engaging patients the way that patient advocates want to see that they engage. Um, but the, this trend is really not the way that they, they like to see or patients or caregivers want to see. Yeah. So, wow. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm thinking about those that are practitioners or clinicians in healthcare going, wow. Um, there's there's a lot to think about here in regards to yeah. going beyond the surface in thinking that you know are are you crafting an experience so you end up getting the rating so you get the funding or are you crafting an experience right. that truly takes the actual patient experience into consideration and mm -hmm. and I think that's a great example another example like you mentioned earlier so simply is how many translations or versions of your surveys are there in different languages, not just regionally, mm -hmm. you know, right. but also just right, right, right. Cons considering that aspect. And actually my, my question kind of follows that train of thought, which is what are some of those practical ways that you've started to see that clinicians, that, that practitioners in this space can begin to bring more empathy into healthcare? What are some of those considerations for, for people that you recommend as a starting point or as something that they can begin to integrate into the way that they serve the needs of the patients? So in the chart, the medical chart is the way we communicate, um, the, um, you know, practitioner to practitioner. So a lot of doctors write notes and these notes get transferred to different facilities and other practitioners. And, um, you know, I think being culturally sensitive is very important. Right. And um, also knowing who takes care of what is very important because many times um, patients with second languages have either their, their um, children or family members who take care of their stuff because of this language barrier. Mm -hmm. um, and when that is not recognized and honored, um, the communication is going to break down. And I guarantee, I guarantee 100%, all patients with uh, language barriers have issues in their healthcare. I guarantee it. Um, it's, you know, perfectly, you know, well-suited, um, patients who may have PhDs, I hear these stories all the time. Um, 
you know, they still struggle. They still struggle because it, it doesn't matter. It, it, when it comes to language, um, it does matter. But then I feel, I, I feel the feeling and the pain of all patients, mm. no matter what, um, what language they speak. But it for to just to focus on these patients who have second languages, um, you know, there's no proper way to assess um, assess these things at the registration. Um, you know, they don't necessarily get asked what language they prefer. Um, so, and there's sometimes depending on which system the the healthcare system uses. There's no proper way to record what language the patient speaks. So this is um, this is there's so many pieces in every aspect of interaction that I see that that these patients will fall into cracks. So right. I'm just talking about the registration um, <laughs> surface, right? Yeah, yeah. Just, um, just the system they use already yeah. creates the inability right. for a clinician to be able to operate in a way that brings exactly. more humanity, right? So it's like, exactly. just the, the first interaction with a right. tool, with a tool right. that right. is not designed to connect human to human, it puts the clinician at a disadvantage. Yes, yes. And that's, you know, after, so after, if we just pass over that surface and, right. you know, the, the interaction that, you know, happens with the doctor and let's just give an example about this cultural, um, you know, we have all, we all have implicit bias and this mm-hmm. is very prevalent in healthcare as well. Um, so, and this happens both ways. So um, I've, I've heard from patients, you know, that, you know, when the cultural differences are not um, understood, um, you know, there's a barrier of, like not being able to be completely open, not being able to be um, like understanding what um, the other party is saying. Um, I've heard from patients as well when um, you know, the difference is so big, they they can't really go further down than like what they can just see or do with diagnostic testing. So there's a huge barrier right there, um, and that is, and this is this is something that I bring also. That this is why a lot of patients who are minorities seek um, providers who have same ethnic background, even if that provider does not know the language, um, because in a hope to be understood better, and that is right. the ultimate goal of patients. They want to be understood when they present with their um, symptoms. But, you know, now the doctor's appointment lasts 15 minutes, maybe even less. And, you know, and there are these different pieces right there too, right? PAs and nurse practitioners, um, you know, know, they they, um, see patients under the supervision of the, the doctors. So, but then is this helping? Is this helping um, to create the trust, to create the bond between the doctor and patient? So there's a lot of moving pieces in there yeah. in, the every, yeah. in the every interaction that patients um, go through in healthcare. 
And even after the, the patient visits a doctor, when you go to the pharmacy, you get a prescription that's written in your language, no? Um, is there a, a person who they can talk to um, comfortably? And these pharmacists are processing hundreds and you know hundreds of prescriptions without breaks. How, where, how <laughs> can healthcare really be helpful for these patients? Um, you know, patients get lost. Um, and, and I mean, you know, um, I mean, and you think about it in terms of if you're 90 year old um, gentleman who have no one to help around, um, you know, and sometimes now, you know, even college who have to take care of these things, they don't really know. I mean, they've never had interaction with healthcare system without parents, right? So, I mean, it's not just elderly, it's not just uh, younger patients, you know, it just affects everyone in some way. Right. And every piece of these interactions, if it, it when it compounds, mm. like, you know, it's a whole thing. And patient is only one person who experiences these different interactions. And how, who's assessing the whole process, uh, you know, the patient experience? I mean, I, I know there is more movement out there, um, but if that patient cannot verbalize or communicate the way um, they want to, then who's, who's assessing? Who's responsible? Who's in charge? Yeah. Is patient in charge? You know, mm. these questions, we really need to ask harder questions. We need to really look into, um, you know, the system very, very carefully. And the, the whole interaction that patient experiences through, we really need to look hard to see how we can help patients. Um, and healthcare professionals. I, I want to emphasize that too, because, um, you know, health, it's health systems and also patients want empathy from healthcare professionals, understandably. Mm-hmm. I totally get it. And that, and that was me too. I was a caregiver who wanted that. But as I became, um, healthcare professional now, it's really hard to have empathetic spirit when they go into these interactions because doctors are pressed to see more patients in shorter time. Pharmacists are pressed to um, process more prescriptions and that's how they measure the performance. You know, when I said, um, you know, I don't get lunch break, People said, like, you know, is that even legal? <laughs> right, right. That sounds like it's not. And, um, <laughs> and legally, and... you know, we are supposed to, but we don't necessarily get it. And so this goes to that, you know, all healthcare professionals. Sometimes yeah. we can't, we don't have time to take breaks. 
and nurses, like how many patients do they take care of um, per their shift? You know, they, they, they usually do 12 hour shifts. Um, they all, average, they walk three miles, you know, um, and who's, who's looking at these things and say, this is really affecting our patient care, not the bottom line, you know, yeah. they look at bottom line first. Yes. They don't look at, they don't look at humans first. So how Agreed. can healthcare be healing environment? It cannot yeah. be. And this is where I think, Sujin, there's the alignment with, you know, what we've been talking about is if you want to really improve patient safety, patient experience, it starts with building a culture for your staff, building a cultural yeah. environment for the clinicians mm -hmm. and um, uh, investing into, um, you know, giving them that ability to be human, <laughs> right? And right. the systems are so structured in such a way like, they're measured by how many patients they're able to see at a time, how the shifts can be maximized, how can we get the most efficiency, how can we get the most billability, and you know, how can we like you know check out the box or get the survey to be a certain rating just so we get our remuneration, right. but not really looking at genuinely enhancing the patient experience. But let's figure out how to get how to train our clinicians to get the highest level of score by really teaching them how to get that score, right? And we're mm -hmm. not really looking at building an environment where these clinicians deserve to be themselves, be human. If they can't even be human themselves, how can we expect them to look at others as humans, right? So many mm -hmm. a times the systems um, that are built and designed are not allowing clinicians and the staff and the healthcare providers to even have empathy if they want to be empathetic, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's right. not they're not they're not incentivized for it. They're not given the space for it. Hell alone, let alone they're not even allowed to be human in their own way. So, mm -hmm. so how can mm -hmm. we expect that empathy to be carried forward to patients? So, I think ultimately mm -hmm. there's a lot to be talked about: cultural competency, cultural integrations, and culture at a workplace, like a healthcare system, um, where we need to really consider starting with creating empathy for the staff and each other. That's the only way we can see yes. it extend to patients. So. Yeah, 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 definitely. Well said. And, and, you know, I, as, as we were, as I was listening to this and kind of, and kind of walking through this process and thank you for sharing that end to end spectrum. I know that there are yes. a lot of other nuances, but you being mm -hmm. able to walk us through someone checking in all the way through, you know, <laughs> receiving medication and all those elements. I just, I kept hearing over and over again that, that love truly equals understanding. Like humans want to be seen. They want to be heard. They want to be felt. Right. And, right. and the more that we can be seen and be heard and be felt, um, the more it creates an opportunity to be more empathetic. And yes. what I'm hopeful of is that our listeners and our, our, the folks that are watching are able to feel some of that urgency mm -hmm. around, around recognizing areas in their lives that they can bring empathy to the people that they interact with. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's a, powerful, that's a powerful gift you've given everyone, to be honest with you, because 
even in reflecting, I'm not a healthcare professional, but even in reflecting <laughs> on situations in my life that I need to slow down, that I need to recognize the stories mm -hmm. of others. I need to understand and see and listen to understand to other people. Mm -hmm. I think that's a valuable, valuable tool. Um, so, so Sujan, I want to, I want to thank you for what you've shared today and, and ask if you have anything else to share before we wrap. I'd love to, I'd love to be able to close. Yeah. So I wanted to, so I told you today's my dad's birthday. Yeah. Um, and the last moment of his um, death where I really um, felt he showed empathy and it was more like a precursor of how I advocate for empathy now. Um, so, you know, we were in the emergency department and he was vomiting blood and um, there was a nurse that I can't remember her name, but um, she was giving my dad a painkiller and my dad um, said in a very inaudible voice um, with his, all his might, thank you to my, to that nurse. Hmm. And that was his last word. Hmm. He did not have chance to say anything else to me or my brother. Um, and that's what he did. And the nurse that, um, he, she almost like hugged my dad's head and, and said, oh, you're not at the place to, to say those things. I don't have to be thanked. And she was very touched about that. So that moment really taught me a lot of things. Um, I know it's hard for patients to be able to do that, but my dad did. And he was such a person um, all throughout his life. Um, the magic happened, the magic of empathy happened when we are able to be um, thankful even at the last moment, even when it's so hard. Um, and I wanted to share that story because it gave me a realization that um, empathy is possible in healthcare. Uh, and I know it's hard for patients to have that kind of moment all the time. But when they do, and, and this is a power that patients have, and I, that's why I wanted to bring it to, to the podcast um, and say, when you're able to, and, and that's, that's the patient's power that they can practice in hmm. that interaction, uh, in the interaction, the, all the interactions that I explained. Um, and, and the patients should not forget that power and practice that um, it's the, the magic can happen and um, you know healthcare professionals are humans too that they chose those professions for a reason um, to take care of patients but we do get tired and we don't get the breaks and breath that we need to have that empathy in our hearts 
mm-hmm. um, because we can't take care of ourselves. So when patients bring that realization up, um, um, healthcare, healthcare professionals will be able to remember and resonate with patients. So I wanted to um, share that the patients have these powers and not to forget to bring that forward. Susan, thank you for sharing that. Could you share with us your father's name? Um, His name is Gain Lee. We're very thankful for him. Um, And we're thankful for your uh, time today and uh, what you shared. Um, And we want to honor him on his birthday as well. And and just say thank you for for, for telling that story. That's very powerful. Um, And I'm very thankful that you, you were willing to share that. And wow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for having me. Yes. Yes. We, we appreciate it very much. And as always, uh, I want to say thank you to our listeners. Please be sure to check out the book. I know Sujin, you're reading our book right now, and I'm so thankful for that. Uh, that's awesome that you're reading it and you're enjoying it. And it is available to, to purchase on Amazon and everywhere else you might find books. <laughs> and you can check it out at loveasabusinessstrategy.com if you're wondering what the book title is. If you're listening to this podcast, which is called Love as a Business Strategy, that's a big hint. And you'll receive more information there as well as free resources. I do want to say as well uh, that Sujin's medium publication is called I Am Cheese. So feel free to go and follow, clap, because that's what we do on Medium is we clap <laughs> for articles. and. You have to follow, read her content. It's incredible stuff, and it's powerful to help build um, empathy and, and emotional connection to the stories that that she's trying to tell. And here at Love's Business Strategy, we're posting new episodes every Wednesday. So if there's a topic that you'd like to have us cover, please let us know. You can do that by visiting softway.com slash L-A-A-B-S. And if you liked what you heard today, please do leave us a five-star review. It's very helpful in helping new people find our podcast and the stories we're sharing and subscribe on Apple and Spotify. If you know someone who might enjoy this storytelling, might enjoy this podcast, don't forget to share the love as a business strategy, pun intended. <laughs> Sujin, I want to say thank you again. I know I've said that a lot, but I really appreciate <laughs> your your perspective, your stories, um, and being willing to bring your, your father's story to our conversation today. And we just, again, appreciate your time on this podcast so much, but we hope to see and, and hear you all next week on Love is a Business Strategy.